You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight's scripture comes from Lamentations 4, starting in verse 1. Lamentations 4. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed, the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and has no hands, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like the sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no garment was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our own streets. Our ends drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, who captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. My name's Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, if you're uh, here for the first time, um, my name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. I already told you that. 
And, uh, and, and you know, Matthew uh, 19.29 w- would speak to this, where it says, you know, blessed are you who have left houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and chief playoff games for the kingdom of God. Great is your reward. Uh, your uh, house will be bigger in heaven. Um, and then you can maybe box seats. You can invite all the other people over. Um, but man, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Lamentations 4, it, 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 it's a tough chapter. Like none of, none of the verses in Lamentations 4, none of those verses find their place uh, on a coffee mug. I mean, none of the pictures that we see in that find their place like, you know, on, on someone's blog and it makes you feel happy. It's not exactly a passage that, that you preach a lot to like make you feel good about where you are in life. Lamentations 4 it is a moment where we look at a city that has fallen and we look at a city where it talks about even mothers are losing their compassion. The, the, the comparisons are, are, are dark in nature. And like, it really, I, I think the bent of this is what I experienced uh, when I was in college. You know, the, the bent of this is what I experienced. I, I was in college and uh, I was playing uh, uh, intramural uh, flag football. I still have all of my college football eligibility left. I'm saving it for a time later. And uh, so uh, my fraternity, we, we took the field. We had our uh, 100 green jerseys on that had gold trim. And uh, we played the game. I can't remember if we won or, or lost. So I'll just tell you that we won. I mean, it's just better if I remember it that way. But at the end of the game, one of my friends came off and he was kind of straggling over, kind of walking like the walking dead a little bit like this. And he was trying to pull his shirt off. And I remember thinking, man, what is wrong with him? And he finally gets it off, and he looks at me and says, Casey, and like, like this grimacing voice, is there something wrong with my shoulder? And I look at his right shoulder, and I calmly respond like, oh my gosh, you need to see a doctor. Like his shoulder was like dropping down, like maybe three inches lower than the other one. And where his collarbone was, like it just didn't look right. And, and it was a moment where like, I'm not a doctor, But I know that's not right. Like it was a moment where you look at a situation and you don't have to like know everything about the situation. You don't have to know everything about how that situation came to pass. You don't have to know everything of how to fix it. But you can look at it and say, that's not right. There's something wrong with this. And I I think sometimes... I think sometimes that's what God requires of us, to look at something and say, this isn't right. Like something's wrong, something's broken, and and to lament it. And that's actually what I think we see here when we can look at something and be brave enough to say, it's broken, it's not right. Lamentations 4, I think it's something like that. Like I think Lamentations 4 demands us to look I think the demand of Lamentations 4 is to look and acknowledge that something is broken. And so the language that we see over and over is in the streets, in the streets. I think what happens in the fallen Jerusalem, and so it's possible that the occupation has started, that you know the Babylons have broke through the walls or they're right about to break through the walls. And what he's doing is he's walking around and he's saying, look at all the brokenness that is here. It's broken all around. It demands that we look at what is. And there's a part where we even connect it to what might have gotten us here. And we just lament it. 
It, it doesn't necessarily demand that we fully understand it, or it doesn't even talk about how to, how to fix it. Like Lamentations 4 just settles us in that. And we're going to be two weeks here, and then that one week in Lamentations 5, and I'm just going to prepare you now. It doesn't end like, oh man, it all worked out which actually is how a lot of life is. Like we have the promise of like a, a Romans 8:28 and when you can't believe that lean on the picture of Jesus. Like when his hands are hard to trust, like look at the hands themselves, like the hands with nail scars in them, can they be trusted? But sometimes we get to a place and we just say, man, it's broken. I don't know what to do. And we wait upon the Lord. And that's kind of what Lamentations 4 is like. It says, do you see? Do you remember what it was and do you see what it is now? Lamentations 4, it's kind of a mixed genre. Like, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag of sorrow uh, where, you know, it, it's a lament. Like, there's definitely the question of why. Like, you see these before and after pictures and it says, why, oh God? It was like this, but now it's like this. Why? But it's also kind of a, a funeral dirge or a funeral song where a funeral song just cries about what is lost. It's lost. And so these, these kind of mixed bag of, of suffering kind of gives us some freedom to say, man, there's a place where we want to ask why, and there's a place where we just want to lament what is broken and what is lost. You know, uh, Lamentations 4, it actually doesn't offer us any new information at all. All the information that we have in Lamentations 4 has actually already been given to us in Lamentations 1, 2, and 3. It doesn't offer really any new pictures of what's going on. We've already seen hunger in the streets. We've already seen children suffer. We've already seen fear taking over people like we've seen it. But it offers these gritty and horrific before and after pictures. And it gives us three pictures of before and after. Like if you're looking down, like what you're going to see is you see like pictures of the wealth of the city both before and after. And then it's going to look at leaders before and after, what they used to look like, what they look like now. And then it's going to go to children, what they used to do in the street and what we find them doing in the streets now. Like we will look at those three areas but I actually don't, just to walk through, and I mean, hopefully that some of these things kind of address and relate into our lives, things that we hope in, that ultimately Lamentations 4 in the Bible as a whole is saying God doesn't necessarily value the things that we value. But ultimately, I think it's using these pictures to make one main point, to make one idea. And the grittiest pictures that we see uh, kind of go through all of those. And one is like how sin falls upon children. When we refuse to fight sin, children will suffer. And we're going to deal mostly with that next week. But the, the theme that is repeated most here is what is seen in the street? And I think Lamentation is just saying, will you look at it and will you be honest about what's there? And so looking at this, like verses one and two, we're gonna see wealth, verses five through nine, and then jump to the end, we're gonna look at leaders. And then we're gonna look at children in verses three through four really briefly, because we're gonna really unpack that next week when we look at this chapter again. Like when we get to chapters that they, you know, those verses don't make coffee cups, we're gonna spend extra time on them. And then we're gonna really spend just saying, hey, what did we see in those streets? What do we see in our streets? Not all streets are created equal. And so let's just get started. 
In in verses one, the first thing is we talk about the wealth of Jerusalem and we see a before and after picture of this wealth and ultimately it's gonna say this, the wealth of the city that was once so highly sought after and paraded as proof of success is now dim in luster and it's scattered in the streets. Like, Like look, verse one, it says, how the gold has grown dim how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of the potter's hand. And so all of that is talking about things that were once considered wealth and precious and important. Things that would make you secure are now just in the streets. Like, like look at, like when it talks about gold, where it says, you know, the pure gold has changed. Gold is now dim. Like it's talking about the properties of gold, like not even working anymore. Like the main thing about the property of gold is it doesn't oxidize. It doesn't grow dim. But in this city, in this place, it's saying all the wealth of the city, what does it do for us now? It's changed. Which is actually, the properties of it haven't changed. It's that we were attributing properties to it that it could never accomplish. It goes on and it talks about the precious stones and gems. And it makes the correlations with the sons of Jerusalem. You know, they used to be worth their weight in gold, but now they're just, you know, empty. But what this is saying over and over, like these pictures are saying the things that we trust in, are we sure that God puts the same value in them? Like wrong personal values reap destruction. I mean, how many families are sacrificed because the lust of heart? Because like this moment where dads, you know, say, man, I didn't really get to live my life the way I want to. And they start running after other things. Or how many families are, are, are destroyed because it's like this lie of like, man, I'm going to provide them the life that I never had. And then they're never there. See, when we don't value the things that God values, those things will eventually run dry. Or, or like when it talks about like not just personal values, because this is talking about a city. What about cultural values? Like when, when cultures value things that aren't the things that God values, I actually think that's what we're going to see a lot next week. It's left for children to deal with it. And so we see that God doesn't always value the things that we value. And so the first thing about wealth is like, man, you think it's going to accomplish. You think it's going to do this. You think the pursuit is worthwhile. And it just leaves you lacking in the street. First, it talks about the before and after picture of wealth. Next, the before and after picture of leaders. Like we see this picture of Jerusalem leaders. Like they were once distinguished and dressed in white, but now they're languishing in the dirt of the street. Look at verse 5. It says, those who once feasted on delicacies now, like I'm inserting that, now perish in the streets. Or verse 5, it goes on, it says, those who were brought up in purple now embrace ashes of heat. Or verse 6, the chastisement of the daughters of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Like in that moment, we see the picture of what leaders were like and where they are now. And these are like the the famous people it would be, I guess. 
And it, see, it shows them that they once were dressed beautifully and they were healthy. And now, where are they now? And then in verse 6, where it just says, man, it'd be better if it was like Sodom and Gomorrah. It just means it'd be better if it all just ended at once. But we're left here slowly losing everything we put our hope in, wringing our hands in anxiety. But it goes on. Like, look at verse 7. It says, her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphires. Verse eight, now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the street. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry wood. And so that's just saying like the rich and the famous, like they were so pretty and dressed so wonderfully and they were healthy and they didn't age. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like the cast from Saved by the Bell. How does A.C. Slater not ever age? Like, is he sleeping in, like, cryogenics? What does he eat? Is it Pilates? Like, what? Or, or, like, Tom Cruise. Like, what sort of, like, Christian scientist multivitamin is he taking? Like, that man will ride his motorcycle in a wheelie in his funeral parade. You know, I mean, like, like you look at these people and they said, man, they were so beautiful Everything seemed to work for them. And now it all fell apart. You see, the promise of success and status, it didn't pan out to save them from the consequences of their sin. We see a before and an after picture. And then it just kind of restates verse 6 again, just a different way. Where Look at verse 9. It says, Happy were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. It'd be better to die violently and quickly than to lose everything that you idolatrously trusted in. Many deaths. I mean, moments of I gave so much up for this and where has it left me now? Moments where I, I put so much stock here and now I wish I could redo it, but w- what do I do? Like, I can't take that back. I put so much hope here and now what do I have? Like, it, it, it don't, like, it'd be crazy. It would be crazy for us to act like these two before and after pictures, like, like don't connect to us in our views of success or connection or health and wealth. I mean, goodness gracious, there's a whole gospel movement with, with health and wealth. Like, I mean, and, and it does not, that movement does not preach Lamentations 4 ever, 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 ever. Because there's a natural draw that we think, man, if I had that, or if I could live there, or if I could look like that, or if I could have that kind of career, or get that kind of reverence from people like they would esteem me, then I'd have everything that I want. It would all work out. And yet, Lamentations 4 says, hey, there's a picture. The wealth looked like this. Now it's like this. Leaders looked like that, but now they look like this. And then if you jump down to verse 20, it talks about King Zedekiah. You know, it, it says actually the Lord's anointed, which we'll unpack that a little bit more next week. But it basically says, hey, he made this political, that we're looking for another nation to save us. If you read Jeremiah, you see that he made a political arrangement with Egypt instead of following after the Lord. And I, I, I actually think 
Like, I, I, think, that's, I think that's an allure for the church. Like, I, I think there's an allure to the church that, man, if we have that kind of prestige or that kind of power, you know, or if we're in that kind of place and in those kind of conversations, then it will go good. And I would just say, you need to look at history. Like where those things were parallel, where the church was in a place of power with, with the government, like it didn't last long for them. Like, like think about Sweden and Calvin. Calvinism, like Calvin, John Calvin, who, great theologian, kind of went crazy a little bit at the end of his life, but Calvin, like, like he held power. Like the church and the state like held power together. And I, I, I'm not for sure. I don't, think, I don't think the church is holding a whole lot of power in Sweden right now. I don't think it has a strong gospel influence. Or you could look at Luther and Germany. Like Luther in Germany, like that, you know, Luther, he went and he translated the Bible into German and all of a sudden it rise to power. And to be at the time of World War II, to be German was to be Lutheran. Like over and over, like when the church starts to say, man, we just need power, like it doesn't go well. Or you could look at all of the, the Roman Catholic Church and the medieval times. And then we look at other countries where the church doesn't have any power. Man, we see him growing in South America. We see him growing in China. I mean, there, there's this lure to think, man, if we have that kind of alliance, it's going to go good. And yet we see Jesus' sermons, and he's always talking to people who have no power. Like there's a danger for us. Like Jeremiah shows us that power and prominence, it won't save you the way you think it will. It won't do what you think it will do. And then the, the third picture is children. We see this before and after picture of what Jerusalem's children look like. And I just, just look at it real fast. I'm just going to give you a part of it. In, in verse 4 it says, The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. And so the picture is from babies to children, they can't get enough. Like, it's actually a lot bigger. This is one of the bigger pictures, I, I, I think, in Lamentations 4, even though it doesn't have the most verses associated with it. But like in verse 3, like we see moms turning cruel toward the need of their children. Or, or verse 4, we see nursing infants and the children in the streets are starving. Verse 10, we see the dead children becoming food for their starving parents. And we're going to unpack a lot of that as we look at Lamentations 4 again. But, but I think, just hear this. Like when we refuse to, to fight sin inside of us and around us, but inside of us, our kids suffer. And is, is that not obvious? Like, like absentee fathers, where are they? They didn't fight the sin inside of their hearts and they ran after other things. Or, or, or like, like think about substance abuse. Where does that lay the most harm? Upon children or sexual addiction or abuse or poverty or, or abortion. And we'll pick up all of that next week. Like when we don't just like fight sin within, like it, it does horrible things and it's laid upon our children. And like if you're married, like the reason why you fight for intimacy and you fight to be forgiving to your spouse, it's not just for you. Like I would actually say it's more tied to a covenant picture of what God has done in the gospel and it's more tied to a picture of a heavenly father who sacrifices all things for their children. And this, this deep, dark, 
picture is all happening in the street. Like I think in the street is the most, it's the, it is the most repeated picture in chapter 4. Like it speaks of every street. Look at verse 1. It says every street. In verse 5 and 8, it says in the streets. In, in verse 14, it says throughout the streets. And in verse 4, it says in our streets. And in every description of that, he's not seeing great things. He's seeing destruction, and he's just saying what's there. He's not painting it up. He just says it used to look like this, but now it looks like that. I think Jeremiah is talking about what is really happening. I think he wants us to direct our eyes. He's directing his eyes to the street of Jerusalem. And I think there's a moment where he's just saying this. God's people, can we look at the streets that we live in and around us, and can we just be honest about what's there? Like, he doesn't offer any solutions. He does kind of dish out some sins that weren't dealt with. Like in verse 13, look at verse 13. You see prophet and priest mentioned. And so those are, both, uh, those are both offices of the church at the time. And he says, where were you? And, and so, you know, if we're talking about the, the ruling authority of Jerusalem, it would have been prophet, priest, and king. And so he starts off before he gets to verse 17 where he calls out King Zedekiah. And he says, church, where are you? And then verse 17, he calls out King Zedekiah. He doesn't use that name, but he, he calls him out for refusing to listen to Jeremiah and making a political alliance with Egypt for salvation, but they never showed up, which is exactly what Jeremiah said would happen. Jeremiah tells us that the prophet, priest, and the king share in guilt for the condition seen in the streets of Jerusalem by what they said and what they didn't say. And so I, I think, to be faithful to the text, we would just ask, hey, when we look at our streets, what do we see? You know, I, not all streets are created equal. In uh, Generous Justice, there's a description of... Um, of Sandtown, Baltimore. And so Sandtown, Baltimore, it, it's a neighborhood, and it, it's been in the news, you know, Sandtown, Baltimore. It's a really predominantly black, uh, really impoverished neighborhood. And so, you know, one of, um, actually, uh, one of Tim Keller's students, he moved in, and he started doing research of how did Sandtown, the neighborhood of Sandtown, how did it get to be like this? And so just kind of in there, in chapter two, he just unpacks, he just does a case study and says, let's look at one of these like really broken neighborhoods that's predominantly black, and let's just, let's just look at how it got there. And so he starts off, he describes this as an example, he calls it as systemic exclusion, which just means this, like how a neighborhood gets left behind. And, and so he says at its foundation and along the steps, we see these steps toward it that exclude it further and further from progress. And so he, this is what he, in discovering, this is what he said. He said, er, in the early to mid-1900s, segregation made Sandtown the only option for black Americans fleeing racial injustice in the Jim Crow South. And so in that time, 19, roughly 1917 to 1970, uh, 17 to 1970, you have what's called the, the Great Migration. 
And so um, Isabel Wilkerson, she writes about it in her book, um, The Warmth of Other Sons, where she talks about all of a sudden, black America who is in the deep south, they realize, man, we're not gonna have much opportunity with these unfair laws. And so they start to look around and they start to relocate. Like no one said, all right, migration time, go. But they start to relocate to places like LA or Chicago or Baltimore or DC, these places where there are a lot of industry jobs. And as they arrived, they found, hey, there's not everywhere that we can live. There's certain places we can live. And so what happened was, you know, the the neighborhoods that were closer to the commerce and the city center were reserved for white Americans only. And so the only option for black Americans were places like Sandtown. And, And so they move in. And so by the 1970s, what you have is the industrial and manufacturing jobs were drastically declining. And so the new jobs that were going and they were following like white flight to the suburbs, like the new jobs were too expensive for black families in Sandtown to move there. There was no public transformation for them to get there. And they required advanced degrees that they didn't have access to. And it goes in just 15 years, the job market in Baltimore that used to require a high school degree decreased by 45%, and jobs that required advanced or college degrees increased by 56%. Residents of Sandtown with their weak and failing schools were completely unequipped to make the shift toward these jobs with the rest of society. And those lower paying service jobs, like they didn't offer what the manufacturing jobs, they didn't have retirement or health benefits or job security. And then when all of a sudden, like when a neighborhood starts to become fragile like this and there's poverty, what happens is exploitive behavior starts. Things that the Bible condemns, all of a sudden landlords who don't live in the neighborhood start providing poor and inadequate service. Like we, we see banks and lenders, you know, engaging in various forms of redlining, make it impossible for, for neighborhood residents to get loans. And so this is the moment where you're, you're playing, you know, you're playing Monopoly. And you, every time you get close to go, you get like, you know, you pull up a chance card and you have to go to the nearest railroad and pay owner twice. Like not being able to go around and go, like it isolates and it isolates. Not owning property and family, it starts to isolate and then like the important businesses that require for a neighborhood to fail because of rising crime, because, I mean, what else are you going to do if you have nothing? It starts to climb. They start to leave, and then exploitive businesses move in. See, with, with the economic structure failing, what would you expect to see? Like, you would expect to see desperation, you would expect to see crime. You expect to see these things. Like this historical timeline, just looking and saying what is, it, it's, not, it's not a unique suffering that we haven't seen throughout human history. It's a common suffering that we've seen through human history that's against what God wants. And just, what does limitations want us to do? It just demands us to look at the streets and to be honest. So let's just ask this, what started a place like Sandtown? A racist past. That's what started it. And what started it was, hey, white immigrants, you can live here. Black immigrants, you can live there. Like it didn't start, you know, if we're just saying what started, it didn't start with like individual behavior or family breakdown. That's what followed 
Or we ask this, like, what then happened? The neighborhood was starved of economic and educational opportunity. Then what? Desperation steps in, and then you start to see addiction and criminal activity and family breakdown and depression and the disintegration of community. Like, everyone sees that now. I think Lamentations just says, hey, look at the street. Can you be honest with what's there? But here's the deal. So next week, um, you can write this down. We're going to talk about, you know, how, how, how kids suffer when we don't fight sin. And we're, part of it, we're going to talk about abortion. And, you know, every time I've talked about abortion, I've never had someone say, man, that's way too political. But if we, we talk about race, like, all of a sudden, everything changes. You know, I'm not saying you should watch this movie, but The Devil's Advocate. Um, And so you've got Keanu Reeves. You know, Keanu Reeves is the same actor in every movie he does. He's still Bill and Ted, you know, in in their excellent adventure. But in, in that movie, Keanu Reeves, he lands a high junior lawyer position in this big firm. But then he learns that he's working for Satan, who's Al Pacino, which is kind of a step back in eternity, you know. And so there's this moment where he's like, oh, man, I didn't mean to work for Satan, but I'm working for Satan. But what, 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 what surprises me about the movie is his wife, when they move into this high-rise apartment, all the lawyer demon wives come over. And I'm not saying lawyers. My dad's a lawyer. So I'm not saying they have demon wives. But they all come over. And like she's trying to figure out how to decorate this place. And they don't like just turn their heads around and like run up the wall and like start eating her. They confuse her at every level. Like she's talking about like, man, maybe I was thinking about the drapes over here. And they start offering all these other ideas and what she could do. And what happens is she walks away completely frustrated. No way forward. And that's actually what I see when, when we talk about race. You know, on one side, like what happens is people get really upset. Man, you didn't talk enough. You didn't say this. And the other side is like, I can't believe you said anything. And all of a sudden, like there's no way forward because like if you say too much, you know, you know, everyone's upset. If you don't say enough, everyone's upset. And like, could we just say like the confusion of that isn't helping? Lamentations 4. Lamentations 4, it looks to the broken streets and it just says, what do you see? I mean, I grew up um, on Virginia Street in Ponca City, Oklahoma. You've probably never been there. But it's actually like uh, some of Lawrence Streets, you know, the old brick streets. And so, uh, you know, yeah, they're cool unless you live on it. And then if you get any precipitation and you get any ice, like it's an ice rink, you know, it's terrible. And then, you know, when all the potholes are possible to fix, because no one even knows how to do that anymore. Like, I mean, like, when they have to fix that, they're calling, like, someone's grandpa. Hey, how'd you fix this? And he's like, hey, man, I gave up that 40 years ago. And so, like, it's like, you know, it's cool. It's, it's pretty, but no one knows what to do with it. But, man, I mean, it was fun. I grew, grew up riding my bike all over the place. Like, I grew up getting in trouble and, and you know, I mean, just doing stupid stuff. Not everyone gets to grow up like that. And I I think the first place is for us just to look and say, what do I see? Is it broken? If it's broken, can I call it broken? If it's broken, can I lament and ask why? If it's broken, can I cry for what is lost? 
what we see between a lament and a funeral dirge? Can we just cry for that? Can we just agree that Jesus actually wants to enter broken streets and he wants God's people to enter broken streets? See, like, that's actually when I think about the gospel. Jesus left the streets of gold to enter into really broken streets. Like, like Jesus, he, he, all, when we read the gospels, like we're reading in Matthew, so much of his ministry is just out in the street. Like, I mean, he's, we're in Mark right now, the Bible reading plan, write that down. And so Jesus, he, he touches the untouchable lepers in the street. Jesus, he heals the sick in the street. Jesus, he casts out demons in the street. Jesus enters into the lives of the taboo in the street. Like the Pharisees, like, man, you're talking to prostitutes and tax collectors. And he enters into their lives and all this is happening in the street. He proclaims the year of Jubilee. The year of the Lord, the year where debts are forgiven, and the year where forgiveness and grace is poured out, the year that we celebrate the kingdom of God. He does all of that in the streets. And then we put a cross on his back, and he walks to Golgotha on a street. And the blood that is poured out comes as his body is broken and his blood is spilled to pay for every broken street. And none of that would have happened if Jesus wouldn't have looked at the streets and said, man, they're broken. You know, back um, in the fall when we read Jeremiah and then we read Lamentations in the Bible reading plan, I mean, that, that's hard. Like, I mean, reading all of Jeremiah, I mean, that guy had a hard job. And then reading Lamentations, I mean, we're doing it now. It, it's hard. And you start to think, man, is there any hope? And what, what follows, like, Lamentations is you get to the writings of Daniel and Ezekiel, you know, prophets, why the people were dispersed into Babylonian. And then you get into, like, Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, when the people, God's people come back to the streets. And then you get to the writings of Zechariah. And, you know, Zechariah, he's described um, in the Old Testament as the most messianic prophet. For, for the amount of words in Zechariah, there are more messianic prophecies than any other book. And man, I just remember reading and coming across this and being reminded of this and having so much hope because we were preparing and studying Lamentations. And in Zechariah 8, it says this. Remember, all the brokenness in the street, but this is the promise of Zechariah because of the kingdom of God. In verse 4, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, He's about to say, this is what God says. He's going to describe what the streets, what God wants to do in the streets. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of their great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of the hosts, it is marvelous in my sight. In the sight of the remnant of the people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. I just remember, I actually wrote down in my Bible, I just remember, because studying limitations, that's tough. I remember reading that, and I just said, God, if that's what you want to do, I want to be there. Before Jesus paid for redemption 
of broken people on the cross, he had to do what Lamentation 4 said. He had to be honest about what is broken. And I think the invitation when we take communion as God's people, when we celebrate the brokenness of Jesus, is will we do the same thing? Will we look and just be honest? And listen, devil advocate style, I, I, I think there's... I think, I think there's a lot of confusion and I think there's a lot of demonic work all around to keep us from talking about just what's wrong. What would God have us do? People of God, communion's before us to remind us of what Jesus did to pay for broken lives and it starts with his broken body. And so we remember the body of Jesus broken for you And then Jesus reinstituted the Passover to remember his blood. The blood of Jesus poured out for your life. Let's pray. Um, Father, Lord, we, uh, we just want to acknowledge. Uh, when we see brokenness, Lord, we can't say you don't care. We can't say that you don't see it. We can't say any of those things because we can look at a historical timeline and we see you entering in to the brokenness everywhere. And so, Father, Lord, I just, the pictures are so important and natural properties are so important. What happens to darkness when light enters in? Darkness flees. What happens when the people of God just are honest and they look at what Jesus did and we just say, man, if it makes me comfortable, I must say that's wrong. I don't have to be a doctor to know that's not right. I, I, I don't have to be a rocket scientist to say that's not gonna work. I don't have to be any of those things to look and just say, man, something is profoundly wrong. And then what if we do what we looked at last week? What if we wait upon the salvation Lord? What if we enter in? Like, What if we do that? And so Father, just... In the field of Lamentations 4, give us the ability to look at the before, where we are, and to pray for the future. And so in that moment, the before of what they were, what was lost, and then what we see in Zechariah, a street transformed by the glory of God through the power of the gospel by making disciples. Jesus, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.